Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, the show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Tanya Cook, an entrepreneur and former Nebraska State Senator. Born in Guam, Tanya Cook moved with her family in 1966 to Omaha when her father was stationed at Offutt Air Force Base. Later, in 1999, Tanya became the Director of Urban Affairs for Governor Johans, a position she had until 2006. In 2008, Tanya was elected to represent the 13th Nebraska Legislative District and re-elected to a second term before being term limited. Along with Brenda Council of the 11th Legislative District, Tanya was the first black woman elected to the Nebraska legislature. Tanya was recognized by the National Black Caucus of State Legislators as the 2016 Legislator of the Year. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Thank you very much, Stuart. So, um, Guam, I've never been. Please paint a picture of your upbringing. The picture that I have of Guam is only in my imagination. And become and from the stories of my older brothers, Guam is now apparently a Japanese honeymoon spot, very popular. And from what I understand from the sibling that has been back as an adult, places where they would explore as little boys do are now tourist traps where you pay to go. So I only know Guam through my parents' and siblings' stories, but I know North Omaha very well because I grew up here and uh, have quite a sense of this community. Lots of times somewhat nostalgic. I will own up to that, but it's uh, where I'm from and who I am, and I feel somewhat protective of of this part of town. My brothers played pickup football games in the park on the other side of Bedford, Adams Park, which is known as Green Hill, among the people in our neighborhood as we were growing up. And I just see it changed lots of changes in for the good, obviously. It's a lot more diverse than it was when I was growing up on the on the near north side, we eventually moved further north. But I think it's good. I think it's an adjustment for, as I said, some of us who are uh, have an idea of home and what it is and the good parts about it, especially since there has been an unfortunate decline over the last few decades. So tell me about some of those memories then that you have of... Mm-hmm of your upbringing, because often those are the memories that end up having shaped us yes. uh, in some way as to who we are now. So, so what do you think back on when you think about your childhood? I think back on uh, playing outdoors. Our home had a double lot. So my parents had a garden, a vegetable garden in the background, I had a swing set, My brothers played basketball. All the neighborhood kids came to our driveway to play basketball. We had a red, white, and blue basketball hoop. And our next-door neighbor was a big star at Tech in basketball. Uh, There was a place not too far, but I'm thinking about Friday nights after each of my brothers played on the football team, American football. And you could pick up a pizza from a place called Chicken Delight. Doesn't seem like seem like you can get a pizza from a place called Chicken Delight. But I'm thinking about those memories and playing with children in the neighborhood. And um, also a little bit of seeing the neighborhood uh, change as I got older and uh, what that kind of felt like. Take us on the pathway from going to high school, and then stepping into the adult world before you started to actually think, I will run for elected office. Yeah. I graduated from Omaha Central High School and in, enjoyed school a lot. I had good friends. I participated in activities. I was a varsity cheerleader at Omaha Central. I was also on the student assembly. 
That is what the student legislative body is called at Central. And got interested in politics probably through that. And also watching my parents actively exercise their voting rights. And they were engaged in the community through church, through the schools, and through helping out neighbors and friends. So I became involved in political conversations and I guess won my first elected office at Omaha Central and decided to go on to college outside the state. I applied to three schools. I was fortunate enough to be accepted to all three. I matriculated to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., another place where politics are pretty evident. And I studied business. The The most interesting part of the course of study to me, however, studied international business, were the cross-cultural implications of particularly marketing decisions and policy, business policy, whether that is board policy or there was a required course for business undergraduate students called Social Responsibilities of Business. And that was the only course in my whole career in the classroom that was the only African African professor I have ever had. His name was Jameson Karasha. He was from Zimbabwe. So from Georgetown, I went on to New York City. I worked in advertising and public relations. And wouldn't you know it, one of the women at the PR firm where I was working knew the candidate, the gentleman who was going on to be the first African-American mayor of New York City, David Dinkins. So I approached her about how I might volunteer on the campaign because I had an interest. And she said, I'll do you one better. I'll make sure you get a fun job. And she was kind enough to do that. And I worked in fundraising, which for somebody whose day job was in advertising and PR, not making a lot of money, it was great to have the kind of job where you can feed yourself on hors d'oeuvres and go among political fundraisers. And what was great about that campaign is that there were fundraisers, $10 fundraisers in bars, fundraisers down in the in Greenwich Village with musicians and artists, fundraisers on estates in the Hamptons and in fabulous Fifth Avenue apartments. I was living in a fifth floor walk-up. So the idea that, the, what, this is a whole house? They, they have this whole house and it's right here in Manhattan. It was a fantastic learning experience. And that is where, as they say, I was truly bitten by the bug. Uh, earning a living in New York City is a different story, as you might imagine. And so I had a public relations job that disappeared one day during a recession and found myself back here. I thought just for a little while, but obviously not for a little while. And became re-engaged actually through my friend and former colleague, Brenda Council, on her city council race. So I, I did the public relations and communication for, I mean, how are you going to lose? Council for council? Are you kidding me? That's written. Everything's written for you. And of course, she was a very strong candidate and public servant. It served on the Omaha Public School School Board many, many years, most of those years, I think, as its president and went on to win. And that's how I re-engaged with politics. And then at a certain point, I'd gone back to graduate school and worked in career education. And I was recruited to work in Governor Johan's office. He is a Republican I am a Democrat. I've only ever been registered as a Democrat. The wonderful news about Legislative District 13, among the wonderful things about District 13, is that it is extremely varied in its political opinion. There's a good chunk of people, I want to say, 20% who are registered independents. So they are interested in individual candidates, and I was fortunate enough to win their support twice. So that's how I got to the Nebraska Unicameral Legislature. So it seems fascinating to me, and I I wonder if we live in particular times that are inspiring many more people to consider elected office, but it seems to me that you were raised in a household where the notion of democratic rights and the active 
exercise of those was fundamental combined with I think that experience of running for the student assembly in, yes. in your teens mm-hmm. I don't know this to be true but when I hear you talk about yes. that it seems to me as if your sense of civic involvement was activated early yes. on oh yes you the idea of vacations that first of all weren't oriented toward family or time away from work or school that wasn't engaged in some sort of volunteer organization or volunteer activity is one, hey, I'm open to what that might be like. And that's what 2017 has been for me. But yes, my parents were both Southerners from the deep South. And perhaps you've heard about our country's illustrious history. It's, it spreads beyond the deep South. But the idea that people really did suffer, bleed and die for the right to vote. They were not going to miss an election day. And I've told this story before. I hope I'm not becoming a bore. But I, my father, I told my father I was going to run for the legislature. And he was sort of quiet. And he said, oh, yes, there was a man down in Georgia in our area of Georgia, down in southeast Georgia. He was going to run, and then he didn't say anything. And I said, well, what what happened? <laughs> he said, oh, they hung him. <laughs> so this idea of pursuing high elected office, my mother was from southern Louisiana, and she remembers, I mean, these litmus tests, how many bubbles in a bar of soap so that you could register <laughs> To vote, we continue to realize the consequences of people not being able to participate fully as citizens in the United States. So it was a non-starter to do well in school, to participate in your uh, community, to uh, be law-abiding and love this country through participation. Obviously, given some of the things that you're talking about, want to ask for your opinion and insights into the state of our uh, civic democracy now. Mm. But perhaps before we get there, we should explore your own journey into that world. And before we even get to your campaign, why don't I just ask you to talk a little bit about your experience working in the administration of Governor Johans, who you pointed out was of a different political party, which given that that was only a decade ago, and yet it seems like a hundred years ago in terms of our ability to to even think about working that way. For him to even recognize that he was indeed elected governor of everyone in the state of Nebraska and to have, even at that time, the courage to realize, hey, not only do I not have any people of color, I think there was, Bush Laquana was retained as the labor commissioner, but no, and, and, and the corrections director was also, I think, retained from the Nelson administration and that was it. But not to have anybody in among his personal staff who were from Omaha, forget a person of color. <laughs> a lot of the people came from Lincoln. He was in, had indeed served as the mayor of Lincoln and he'd campaigned, what you typically do for a statewide race is campaign west to east because the people who routinely show up and vote, particularly in Republican races, you'll get 1,500 registered voters and 1,498 of them will be there on election day. So you don't want to not meet those folks. So he uh, reached out actually to a couple of people and it was Brenda Council that he'd run into. They're both attorneys and she'd known of my experience. I left one thing out. I spent a summer working in D.C. on a presidential campaign, a conservative presidential campaign. And that was another surprisingly welcome 
environment. I'm accustomed to working on campaigns where it's kind of, okay, there's your desk and it wobbles a bit. So put this match underneath this campaign. It was Forbes 2000 for Steve Forbes. Um, Flavored coffee in the break room. (laughs) Very well funded, personally funded. So I think that was another reason why Governor Johans felt comfortable that I would work and not be a continual thorn in the side of his agenda, but would be comfortable on both working on both sides of the aisle. Because in addition to the community relations aspect of my role, that is where I f- first got to get my hands on policy and being able to read it and analyze it and read the law and uh, see it through a lens of what the impact would be on the communities that I'm most familiar with and care about. You know, I'm curious if there was uh, there were any moments in your experience in the administration of Governor uh, Johans that you thought, oh, this feels a bit like a deal breaker to me, or I really don't like this policy. But also on the flip side, if you thought you were surprised by how effective you could be, even though you weren't of the same political right. party. And a third thing, and I'm sorry to add this on, it also makes me wonder if that experience gives you hope now, given how divided the country is, mm-hmm. knowing that if it was possible then, yes. that it's still possible again. Yes. I'll take the first part of your question. Governor Johans is a political animal, as were most of his directors. So I had certainly a big pile of bills from the Health and Human Services, But my issue list, these were issues that typically Democrats own. Labor, the Indian Commission, what used to be called the Mexican-American Commission. We used to have a women's commission in this state. So my analysis, I, I was kind of the person that urban education, and when I say urban education, some of the things I'll go ahead and label just for purposes of this conversation, things that are more evident or other additional barriers to a child coming in and being able to concentrate and receive all the support that he or she needs. You don't get to be governor of Nebraska and give ostensibly the other side the whole playbook. And I wasn't interested in that. I was I was interested in what I could contribute, what a great opportunity to contribute to a conversation, to speak truth to power and the idea that he was open to it and wasn't going to do like a bring up a person in that didn't have relationships and and interest and knowledge of Omaha or people of color I thought that I was going to be glad and I was glad for that opportunity to weigh in ultimately there's a policy director and a chief of staff and an agency head and a political philosophy that's got to be kept consistent among all of the legislative policies put forward. I liked the idea of being able to lend my voice to the chorus or lend my voice or bring people in or serve almost as an ambassador or an interpreter when people would come in to meet with the governor on different issues. So that, and then the third thing, I live in hope. I wake up every day and I look outside and the sun comes up and I'm still breathing. So obviously I woke up last November 9th, which by the way, happens to be my birthday. Yes. And I flipped on the light switch and the lights came on and a colleague of mine had booked a spa day for us, Stuart. So I said, this is it. I campaigned for the best qualified presidential candidate probably ever. I was a delegate for Clinton in Philadelphia in July. Uh, when she came to Omaha, I was there. I was fortunate enough to introduce her. Actually, the first time she came to Omaha, campaigned for people all the way down the ticket and up again. And I didn't get my way 
on November 8th or 9th. I believe in that possibility. I think more and more people are starting to recognize that people are policy and that you might want to, you know, it's it might be easy to just in our state bubble in the name that you think, well, in fact, I had somebody actually say that to me. <laughs> That well, what's the big deal? He's the nominee for the this party. I said, wait a minute, <laughs> you're talking to somebody that worked for someone who is a Republican person, and why don't you believe me when I say, like all of the rest of the potential people who wanted that job, this is not your candidate. So I believe because I have to believe. And I think it's an important part of our cultural identity in the United States to uh, have hope and believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today. What was it that drove you to run for elected office for the state? So you were elected in 2008, but obviously your campaigning would have started at least 12 months. Oh, yes, it did. So so tell me about what it was that motivated you to run and then the experience of the campaign itself. Well, there is a concept in feminist writing, in feminist pedagogy, if you will, called being and becoming. And I was at an age and stage in life where I looked up and said, well, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I have worked on campaigns, worked on a campaign for a woman, obviously, and, and, and she won that city council race. But I'd also worked on campaigns for mayor of New York City, worked on a presidential campaign, had been called in to advise people, men people, on campaigns. <laughs> and I looked up and said, well, wait a minute. If they're calling me to ask me how to do something, clearly I must know what I'm talking about and what I'm doing. I also have to say that in part of the thinking that one gets, uh, the facts that you learn, the facts of life as a black person, when someone brings up an opportunity to you, you say yes to it generally because they don't come back around. They're not holding the slot for you. (laughs) There's no, you know, shepherding Sherpa water wings (laughs) and a guide. So that is what I did. People close their eyes and imagine a Nebraska state senator. My guess is a black woman doesn't pop into their mind. Now, maybe it does. But in 2007, when I first started thinking about this and started talking to people, that was absolutely part of the consideration that I am, I've lived in this state for most of my life. The iconography, the conversation still keeps going around to farmers and uh, white males, God bless them. But more than half of the population of the state of Nebraska is urban. We live Lincoln East. And that started, I believe, I was the census contact. That was one of my responsibilities in Governor Johan's office to be the governor's staff point person on the census 2000 committee. And that was the first year that Nebraska was more urban than it was rural. And it was also the first year that the largest minority population, if you want to call them that, was Hispanic Latino and not African American. This is the United States of America. Let's if we're going to do this thing where everybody's equal, then let's exhibit it, please, and not give lip service to it, but then only plug people in that look like you or look like the last person that had the job or quote unquote looks like a leader. And I think we are inching away from that. It it's 
That was my own way of saying, I want to be part of this idea of the United States. That's also part of what gives me the hope that you asked about in the previous question. It's like, no, we get it. This is an experiment and it's, it's going to work, but you've got to let everybody participate and everybody has to choose to participate and engage. You know, when, when you ran in 2008 and mm-hmm. were elected, you ran to win. Yes. But was there, did you think you would win? Was there any surprise that you were elected? I have no idea about your margin of victory. Mm-hmm. It was a healthy margin of victory, I, if I have to say so myself. <laughs> and I do. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to minimize the support of friends from all racial, ethnic, um, political identities at all who got out there and knocked doors and raised money in five, 10, $50 amounts. My opponent outraised me. It was a district that in an increasingly politicized environment had been targeted by the Republican party because it had been traditionally held by a legislator that identified himself because it was, that was, they were always hymns. <laughs> As a Democrat. So they saw that as a, because of the, some of the dynamics with uh, people who were identified in, a, in certain faith backgrounds, were gun owners, uh, were union, uh, labor union people, they saw it as winnable. So there was money poured in to my opponent's coffers based on that. But there, you're not going to be, and first of all, uh, I worked very hard and knocked doors. I had relationships on the ground from living, growing up in that neighborhood. After we lived here on Benny Street, I lived north, and those were our same relationships from church, from the schools that my parents worked in, from the schools that I attended. I would ring the doorbell. There's somebody that babysat me. A couple more doors, I babysat that kid. <laughs> a couple more doors. Tanya, remember me from Nathan Hale? So you're, you can pour money in, but you're not going to beat somebody just knows Tanya, Tanya Cook, her parents, her church, her as a human being. And trust is such an important part uh, on in what this amounts to a local race. And there's no amount of negative ads, which did, there were me- negative mailers that went out. That's the great thing about meeting your constituents and being reminded that you're not a stranger to them. What was it like being in the unicameral? How was your experience of first arriving there as a state senator Mm -hmm. or someone who was working there in another capacity? So what was it like actually being one of the first elected African-American women to be in that environment and how were you encountered by your colleagues? Mm-hmm. I assumed, because of my world, my experience in the world, as often being the first and only, whether it's in a classroom, and I studied ballet at the Omaha Ballet, one of the only black people there, lots of activities that I participated in growing up in Omaha, I was the first and only anyway. So I figured I would be the first peer professional relationship with a black woman or a black person in most of my colleagues' lives. Many of my colleagues are in business. Uh, Some of them were retired uh, educators, usually administrators in high school or university. They were farmer feeder ranchers. And I just went ahead and assumed I was going to be there. And I'm used to navigating. I've been doing that since I was six years old. What I found out was I was had much more of a road to hoe being a woman and being, wait for it, from Omaha. Omaha, turns out, is an evil place. <laughs> I didn't realize that because when I went, was, lived in D.C. and New York, they assumed I had a, you know, Omaha white picket fence. I must come from a farm myself. So I found it interesting in order of appearance, Omaha, if Omaha wants it, we don't want it. (laughs) Who do they think they are just because they're Omaha? Really? Well, we provide most of the money in that 
budget number one. That's who we think who we think we are. Okay, uh, Omaha, the woman thing. Nebraska, as it turns out, can be rather a traditional place, and that those are their great things about tradition and and family roles. And I we honor those when they're healthy and fully supported. But to for the tradition of the legislature had been for the wives of the legislators to socialize together. Uh, they did community service projects, tours. They took care of their husband, the legislator. That was new <laughs> for not only my colleagues who are are arm were female with and without spouses at the time, but um, some of the younger spouses who had their own professions. I could name names. Well, the gentleman who happens to be our state auditor's wife has a thriving business and a career. Uh, my friend and colleague, Burke Har has a wife who's an administrator in the public school system at Westside Community Schools. So that was changing, but there's a whole culture around the social side of being a legislator that is designed for a husband, male legislator, a female wife living in Lincoln in her supportive role during the legislative session. All these dinners and events are assume that dynamic. And... So that social side of the legislature was very different. Um, I alluded earlier to how the Nebraska legislature, Nebraska sometimes in the Nebraska legislature, has an idea of itself as being bound to agricultural or rural interests. And certainly the state of Nebraska's economy is an agricultural-based economy. I'm not going to deny that, and we were blessed by that because when the recession came through, our economy is diverse enough to weather that. It was still very difficult when I joined, and those funds from the Obama administration, those uh, ARA funds, kept Nebraska, especially the public schools, funded there was a big hole in the budget that those funds filled. So I'm not going to minimize that. I don't think my colleagues talked about it enough because they came from President Obama. But uh, when we have conversations about, for example, property taxes, I have I had constituents that were homeowners and those residential property taxes go up every year. And that can be a struggle for a family to plan for, especially coming out of a recession. The conversation was about Agland property tax values. Those bills are enormous, but again, the perception is that somehow, and it, it's sad when people lose land that's been in their family, but what I didn't hear is how sad it was when a family in my district <laughs> lost their home, lost their job, when manufacturing jobs went away and those families broke up and the children, I mean, this ripple effect has been going on a long time. I didn't perceive that it was coming back. <laughs> like, okay, this year we'll talk about Agland property tax values and next year we'll talk about residential. Didn't happen. Or talk about, um, there were young farmer programs I didn't necessarily see a proportionate interest in transitioning young people into careers that would take place in Omaha, let's say tech careers or uh, health careers. So that was my experience. And it's just a little, it could be somewhat frustrating. It's, it's stressful because you know, it's a big responsibility. Um, it's when you come in, with the values that I brought about equality, inclusion, um, there's plenty here. I think I want to take this group could use some of it. 
but you you're up against seasoned lobbyists and interest groups that are they know precisely where every dime and dollar is buried and I guess in my going forward, I have a, a fantasy that uh, the interests that uh, related to social justice and health disparities and access to care and public education uh, beyond each district become as well-versed in navigating that system and can weave themselves into the system and the institutions in the same way to to receive proportionate support. So, so you weren't in the legislature to represent a particular class of person or people. You were there to do a job around policy. Now, of course, yes. we've talked a little bit about oh, yes. that experience of who you are and, and perhaps what you represent. But, of course, you're there to pursue policy. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious about what were those issues that concerned you at the time that you tried to address and it sounds as if you and you were just describing perhaps some of those issues that continue to keep Mm -hmm. you civically minded yes i think at the end of the day if someone is able to earn their own living and take care of their own themselves and their own families we all win so when i first of all you win because you can maintain your pride and your integrity and not be have to be in some cases insulted by a system that judges you for needing public assistance. So I went in with an eye toward eliminating barriers to the educational systems, careers, re-entry to a career or an educational system, the community colleges. For example, I was a big champion of the community colleges because you can be that child whose parents didn't have money to send them on to fancy universities. You could be the person, especially when I joined the legislature in 2009, we'd coming off that recession. You could be that family that, oops, we thought we were in good shape and now we've got to start over. That A community college offers that opportunity for education training and retraining. Public health I mentioned earlier, when you are a family that cannot pass wealth along to the next generation, when you are in fact supporting the generation above you, or when you just die 10 years before you're able to retire, live a good life in retirement and pass along a legacy to your family, that has an impact on people of color, working families in legislative district 13 and all across the state of Nebraska and all across the United States of America. Eight years seems like a long time, but in order to move policies forward or to throw your body in front of policies that work against those kinds of issues, you've got to work very strategically. So I served on the education committee served on the Health and Human Services Committee for many years. And in my last biennium, I served on the uh, Appropriations Committee. So you produce a podcast called Black Woman Red State. Yes. And it addresses issues at the intersection of politics, race, culture, and Broadway. Yes. (gasps) So I think you've been talking about some of those, some of the issues that maybe are addressed Mm -hmm. in that podcast. But, but, But tell me what, spurred the podcast and and what are some of those intersections that you explore? Well, I love 
musical theater, I feel like art, and we ran into each other at an art event, I feel like art tells the truth. And what people complain about a lot is that their politicians don't. I don't think they can. I think if if somebody were really running and they really told you everything, I mean, things that are against the law (laughs) aside, people kind of want a a, a level of decorum. So I, I, I happen to enjoy musical theater personally and wanted to use this year out of the legislature to try to engage in social media in a different way. So it's Broadway because it's a nice fun segue into conversations that if, if you're a black woman or if you're somebody that forget it, I'm going to run. I want you to know the things that they that the person that's having coffee with you or taking you to lunch maybe won't tell you about what the experience is really like. I, in my, I've got five episodes. I've been traveling, so I've, I need to get back to work producing some more. But I talked about needing some support, pretty big support. And it never said to my face, but it got back to me that I wasn't getting some needed funds and and hands-on support, like putting up those big signs are hard because this person said a black woman can't win that district. And I go into it in that episode about why he would have said that if he really believed that, if it was just his own personal racial prejudice, if it was quick, I need to say something because I want to support this man that's already had the job. But that's a barrier. Um, I've talked about just what what it's like to be having a conversation with somebody that you think is, <laughs> you think it's the 2000s or the 2010s and you really think my hair doesn't grow <laughs> the same way your hair grows. What an, it's just an odd experience. I've, I've been, I've had very direct racial slurs used to my face and about me. But but what was confusing about being asked whether or not my hair grew on the floor of the legislature was the source, a young man in his 20s. And does this person not think I'm a human being? So those were odd things. Other than that, that, some of my best friendships come out of that because it's like you're in a... I won't call it a war because nobody, certainly no one died in a violent way like a war. But it would be like the people who served in combat getting to get together at the VFW or get together for those coffees because they can only talk about the experience with someone else who's been there. And I do have those friendships from serving in that body, in the fishbowl, And I guess I hope at the end of it, they said very, very nice things about me on the last day that in April 2016. And I think they were sincere. And I guess I I hope I raised their consciousness, those preconceived notions that they might have had about women, black people, uh, black women people. Omaha people, people who've lived in New York City or been to a university that was not the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, a people who root for the Huskers, but don't live and breathe and die with that as the only interest. I'm interested in performing arts and visual arts and things like that, too. Is Black Woman Red State a a way for you perhaps to formalize and scale what I would imagine you've been doing for a long, long time, which is both be a role model, but also to encourage and nurture this increasing movement of some of those types of people that you've mentioned. Um, and, I, and I'm really reluctant to reference types of people because mm-hmm. I, it, it's, it's so reductive in, in many ways, but, but just seeing more interest in politics from perhaps people that wouldn't have considered that, whether it's because of race, right. uh, ethnicity, religious belief, geographical location, um, whatever is held people back. There's a movement towards elected office now, yes. and this is a way for you to yes. tell it like it is. Absolutely. And I will have coffee with anybody and tell them all those things. Not so much these 
insults because that's what they were. But did you think about this, this, and this? $12,000 in a year at all you can eat in the state of Nebraska. There's a per diem, but most people cannot live off of that in 2017. So I, it is a way for me, I can't sit down and have coffee with everybody. And maybe there's somebody, the beauty of a podcast is that it can reach a global scale. There can be someone who's thinking about running for town council in Zambia, theoretically, that can begin to think about what it would really take and know that there's support. Things that, as I said, people were very encouraged about my candidacy. And I believed in my, certainly in my ability to do the job. Even with that, there were many barriers. And I guess what I would hope with Black Women Red State is that women, or not just women, people, they might be the first person in their family to be able to vote and run in the United States. Another group that, since we're are obliged to somewhat group people just for conversational purposes, are people who aren't landed gentry. <laughs> now, you happen to be originally from a country where <laughs> that's who ran things, the end. And to a certain extent, I'm sure that is still changing with entrepreneurship in in England and Scotland. But that was never supposed to be the way it was over here. But as I mentioned, my colleagues were rich by anybody's definition. So there's a group of folks that are like, I don't have a bunch of money. I don't believe that at the end of the day, certainly it's necessary to get the word out about your candidacy, to remind people when election day is, to remind people to get their absentee ballot in. But it, I should not According to the eligibility requirements for this office, it doesn't say rich person. It doesn't say white person. It doesn't say man person, married man, straight married man person. It doesn't say that. And again, why we? this is supposed to be running off the rule of law. And let's just try to be as transparent as possible. And people are willing to step up and claim their candidacy. I feel like I want to give them somewhat of a leg up on what it takes to win. You mentioned earlier uh, your one and only African-American. You said he was from Zimbabwe, but uh, mm-hmm. a, a professor that was teaching you at college and talking about the social responsibilities of business. Yes. And you have a PR advertising background mm-hmm. and you have founded and you run City Girl PR, which is a communications and yes. engagement firm. So you have this deep professional side to your activities still focused on public engagement. But I want to ask if, notwithstanding you have a full professional life in that field, what is next for you in terms of other civic or political roles or offices? Thank you for asking me that. I will continue. I have some clients on the north side in Legislative District 13 that are there's going to be more work that requires civic and public engagement in my neck of the woods. And if there's anything I feel passionate about now is that people should have the opportunity to engage, especially when their tax dollars are involved, but that they should... Um, have the opportunity to engage in the work and make money from it. Let's say they have a construction company or let's say they have an engineering firm. So I feel very passionate about that. I also went back to my university campus in October before I went to uh, Europe and have an opportunity to work in their, they have a new school of public policy at Georgetown and they have a new center for Georgetown University Center for Public Policy and Policy and Public Service. So I'm 
talking with the office of the president about how I can be helpful there. I see so much opportunity. Certainly Georgetown has a global focus and a federal focus, but they recognize that a lot of the work, a lot of their students will be working in their own states and provinces around the world. So I'm really looking forward to developing that at my alma mater and using my experience and interest in public health also to work in the public health arena. That's what's next for City Girl. Remember those bumper stickers that said, think globally, act locally? I think I might be turning that a bit right now and thinking locally but acting globally. I'm, I'm very interested in getting to know uh, the emerging immigrant refugee populations in our city and across our state. I was fortunate enough to have a friend who did mentoring at the Lutheran Family Services. And my top campaign workers were Somali Bantu family, which has grown I loved being in the St. Patrick's Day parade with little girls in hijab with a St. Patrick's Day sticker stuck on their hijab. That's the story I want to be a part of. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, Download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Tanya, thank you for being a part of this brief story on today's show. So I really appreciate being here. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>